Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. And today I am with dancer, choreographer, and co-founder of Scarlet Imprint, Alkisistemek. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to me, Alkisistemek. That was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> you know, uh, we were just talking before we started the official interview about your dancing. And, um, you know, my sister's a dancer. I never was a dancer. I'm quite disconnected from my body, but it always thrills me when I see somebody who uses dance not just as a way for technique, but as a way of spiritual communion. I've seen a Buto dance many, many years ago back in New York City, and it really affected me. And I can see that Buto affects you very much, and I wanted to know a little bit more about Buto and your history with it. Okay, where to start? Um, well, I discovered Buto when I was at university and I was um, uh, studying Asian and African music, and I was very interested in the theater and the dance of these places. So. I was just in the library and reading, and I found an article, um, a few articles on Hijikata Tatsumi. So I read these and very, like, they, they sort of clicked in my mind because I was already obsessed with Arto since I was 15. And Bitch! Give me my paper! I had these dreams of creating a theatre, even though I was too shy. I was sort of absorbing this, and I found Buto, and I read Hichikata's ideas, and I thought, this sounds like what Arto was imagining, too. So I just uh, absorbed as much as I could around that. I was already obsessed with no theatre and kabuki. Cambodian and Balinese dance, all of the Southeast Asian forms were just so beautiful. Manic Buto is like, seems, even though it's so postmodern in many ways, it has this blend of the shamanic and the, the prehistoric about it, as well as like the ultra modern. So 
that something that really intrigued me about this possibility of the, the primitive and the primal just immediately erupting out of the, the bottle, out of modern Tokyo, or out of the rubble of, of Hiroshima. There's this suddenly a, a flower, but a flower that carries a very ancient goddess on it. So I was very uh, stimulated by these sort of ideas. I just read a book called Hiroshima, and it was, um, I forget the uh, journalist, but he wrote a book about the aftermath of Hiroshima, and one of the most evocative lines was, um, the people, when they looked around, the plants had started growing at an extraordinary speed because of the nuclear weight, the fallout. And so there was death and destruction everywhere, and yet in the midst of it, there were incredible blooms, incredible greenery, it was mm -hmm. verdant. And the way that you describe Buto, when I saw it before, it seemed like almost like a, not a soft, not a warm art, but the way you describe it, it sounds very soft. <laughs> well, there is a, even to be so hard, you have to have a deep vulnerability and sensitivity. You can't really be a martial artist unless you can do the softest move. It's almost as well with Buddha that you are driven to these extreme forms, these, these difficult movements, because your body is so sensitive that the forces it feels, it exaggerates them. It's like a flag that carries the, the, the spirit of the wind in it. it. It moves and dances. And so, Buto body, it's not so much that you are imposing a, a series of forms on your musculature, you're actually allowing them to be inhabited by images. Even better, phantasmata. I like the word phantasmata because it carries both the connotation of like ghost, wind, and image. So, this is what makes the movement in Bhutto the images that you somehow mesh with your flesh. Well, the reason why I started off talking about Bhutto is that yeah. you talk about magic in terms of embodiment a lot. You talk about using the body, of taking spirits and having the spirit come inside your body. Sure. And that's very different from a lot of the magic that I've been reading about, where it seems yeah. a little bit more like the spirit is outside. There's also a disconnect between the body and the outside, because I don't see, I see the world as something made up of connections, not of something made up of distinct surfaces that touch but don't ever know each other. I think it's a much more interested, inspired by Melo Ponti's idea of the flesh, which it's actually the relationships between everything in the world. So we're sort of knitted together in this common flesh. We're kin to everything. So let's take a step back a little bit. So were you always into the occult or, you know, what happened? Uh, well, the Western occult is something I became involved in quite late. I met Peter and I was, well, it was just before I met Peter and I got drawn into the London occult scene a few months before I met Peter. But, and I was always interested in more that the Asian kind of esoteric um, Vajrayana Buddhism or um, the esoteric Japanese Shingon, but in England I felt quite out of sorts. I didn't belong. Why, <laughs> so Why didn't you I, feel like you belonged? 
oh, there were very real reasons for this. I mean, I wasn't born. I was born in England, but I was raised in Portugal, so I didn't have. And I was raised pretty much alone because we lived in the middle of nowhere. We lived sort of out in a little village, and so as a child, I just raised myself. I also very imagine, you know, live in my world and and just talk to adults, either nature or adults. So I was sort of, when I met the children, what are they? So I came to England. I was just sort of in shock at the. The rigidity of people, of their thinking, of the church, I, I couldn't see. I, I was a wolf, you know, I was completely <laughs> a wolf child and I didn't understand what, like how they could force me to go to school or to go to church and what they were telling me. It was just, uh, I, I, it was all very internalized in my body. The violence, the violence of being told that you have to sit in that chair and sit through a lesson, you know, and yeah, I really experienced that. So uh, when I got a bit older and I discovered Dassard and Genet, they were the writers that appealed to me most, and, and Artaud too, because they experienced prison. So I understood this sense of like being imprisoned, and I was fascinated by these spirits that had broken through their prisons. So for a long time, I was also very uncomfortable with my body. I had a lot of body problems all my life. I had a lot of physical problems, health problems, connected with depression, but it always in me became something very physically felt. You know, I would feel hurting, I would feel pain. So my my interest in dance kind of came as a way to and Buddha particularly to exercise these kind of traumas and pain. Aristotle called it like the census communis. So it is uh, the it is the basic thing we all share, men and women alike. We all have this um, tactile kinesthetic sense, and we learn things like babies learn first of all by tasting and feeling everything around them before the eyes become stronger. So this is this is where our primary learning is is based. It comes it comes from here. This is where that knowledge is stored. So if you force children to sit still, you're actually inhibiting their ability to learn and you're inhibiting their ability to develop a full emotional and physiological capacity. I think a lot of women, we also feel yeah. disconnected from our bodies. It's not safe to be in the female body. It's not yes. safe to be in a trans body. And it's something I've observed actually, the, the differences of the way men and women act in space. It's something I'm very interested in looking at for performance. This how space has carries these sort of genders almost because men behave a certain way in space than women do and why is that? You know like that that meme that was going around a couple of years ago, the man spread, <laughs> like in public transportation, 
guys just like spreading their legs and taking up like or, a, a shit ton of room on the subway. They carry themselves differently because they feel they feel like they own space. Space is like something they have a sort of territorial right over maybe. And women moving through this space, maybe they see as available just because they're in that space. I think women always have that sense that they are not always considered their own person in a place. They're always sort of secondary to the men in a space. I was performing, worst was in Italy, and um, all the dancers were female, and the, uh, the, the, the mechanics and the people who were setting up, the technicians, just addressed the male musicians when they were asking technical questions about what people needed, like lighting and so on, for the dance. They didn't talk to the, the dancers, so we were just sort of ignored. And all of the conversation serious was happening at the level of like men talking to men. So the space was being controlled by men, and I found that, like, that was my first sort of really sudden wake-up to this, and you see it in, in the street as well. One of the big things that informs everything about my life is the difference between the way that I see myself and the way the world sees me. Yeah. And I don't go around in my own mind thinking, I'm a girl, I'm a female, yeah, you know, I don't do that. And yet no. the way that society treats me, I'm constantly reminded. Yeah, I never thought of myself as a girl. I always thought I was more of a boy and I was always quite a tomboy. And so I never, ever considered myself as, like, female in that way. You're just a body, you're just me. <laughs> this is it. You don't think of yourself as necessarily, like, your sexual characteristics precede you. It's against what we've been taught. And a lot of that teaching was also unspoken. It was just observing other women and how women are treated if they actually break out of these confines. So if we stretch our wings out and start making, you know, wings and changing things, then suddenly we become like the bad woman, the wanton woman, you know, the whore, the tart, the slut, the, you know, there are, all these words are thrown at us. of the ways that power is expressed, like, physically. There are other ways of developing and holding this so that have subtle effects on your whole being. So the, all the work of the spinal column is very important. So there's a lot of that in dance, but it's, it's exactly the same kind of work that you would do in meditation or martial work. You are working with this column and all movement comes from it, it's like the puppet. So have this sort of like absolutely gracious puppet energy and weighted in the, the navel. Even being small, it doesn't matter if you're tiny. Your power residing in your navel. So it doesn't matter what height you are. It's not where your navel is in relation to other people. Wondering how you got into the occult scene. I'm guessing that you weren't just walking down the street and you were like, oh, these groups of people, they're wearing all black and they look cool. I'm going to be friends with them. <laughs> no, that didn't happen. <laughs> well, I was doing my Buto dance and I've been, doing, I've been performing for a couple of years or something, two or three years. And I was at a sort of point where I had reached a plateau and I didn't know, I was sort of, shall I give it up, shall I keep going with this, you know, it's very difficult in the beginning because you're doing movements but the connection comes through the repetition and so at the beginning you just haven't done it enough to, to really understand what's happening and so I was in this sort of thing and I had, I seen an advert saying we're looking for, I was thinking about it, I'm like stopping dancing and then I saw an advert 
from a company, a theatre company called Foolish People, who were looking for a performer. And I was like, oh, look, they're into a like, ritual performance. This is interesting. Oh, magic, this is interesting. This is sort of like, because I, I knew a bit about like, Asian magic from being in service and um, looking at trance and, and uh, esoteric religions there. So it wasn't so far for me to look at the Western. And I, I sort of, I, I did one play with her at a place called Treadwells we were rehearsing in London, which is an amazing uh, magical bookshop in London. You might have heard of. You should visit if you go. And then I met Peter, kind of coincidentally. I got introduced to him through a mutual friend about the same time. And Peter was introduced to me as a ninja and a magician. And I was like, oh, great. I'm just going to use this guy and uh, have fun with him for a bit. And then, like... Did you say ninja? He was introduced uh, as a ninja? Yeah, he used to practice ninjas. <laughs> and I was reading, I was reading a book about ninjas <laughs> at the party where I met his friend. So he was like, "You might like my crazy friend Pete." <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> we met on what was it winter solstice, two thousand and five, and it was ah, oh, the energy was so crazy. I just couldn't sleep all night when I got back. Like, this guy had energy, and that hadn't happened to me before, except amongst people who were, like, super crazy martial artists who'd done a lot of weird stuff. So I kind of got intrigued, like, <laughs> you have done a lot of weird stuff, haven't you? I was also reading um, passages from his book, The Red Goddess, and that, it hadn't been published yet, we did that later, but um, he was giving me to read, and he was finishing writing it, so... That was my introduction to the occult, reading The Red Goddess and finding out who Crowley and Dee and Jack Parsons were through that and working magically with Peter and Babylon while I was like starting to see him that first year. So yeah, that was my introduction to the Western occult. I had just made this decision that I was going to really do something. and I don't know what it was, but I, I, I lived very recklessly for a number of years. So I'd been living, before I met Peter, I had spent about seven years just being a little bit crazy and rolling dice and making sort of just exploring life because I had been very um, closed and shy and quiet before. And I opened the doors and invented characters and, and experienced things. When I see the videos of you dancing, I wouldn't imagine you as being a shy person. When you dance, I could almost feel like your form, it feels bigger. Yeah. Oh, it's different when you perform the... The space, the performance space, allows you to be yourself in a way that you never feel you are outside it. It's very magical, special space.
reading your essays and the way that you explained how you mm. see the body and mm. how you work your buto yeah and how it's so beautifully enmeshed with the occult mm. like you've taken your art and mm. you're living it it's not just talking about it you're actually practicing it living it and discovering more about the occult through your dance mm. through that practice and I think that's something that a lot of people try to do, you know, when they're meditating, when they're doing yoga, they're trying really hard to get a spiritual connection. And yet it's very difficult for a lot of people to do. How do you feel you are able to incorporate a cult and your body so well together? I don't know if there was already a potential, a receptivity. I've always been very porous and very, very sensitive. And I've always felt when spirits were around and I've, I'm quite susceptible to magical dreaming. Is uh, I mean, it's also something I've worked on, but I wasn't ready. Like I was already prone to these things before I got involved in the Western occult. The it's been sheer necessity that I've had to get so deeply into my body, um, and it's progressive. So I also feel like now I'm speaking from a position from the position I'm at now, but it's a very different position than say five years ago and I'm sure that in five years time I will be saying something else or, or there will be another perspective deeper. Another thing is, is the, a tendency to have to seem as though you're already perfected in the occult scene, like you are not just a student of this or, or something, but with the body you cannot pretend anything, so I'm just a student of this, I'm not I'm not an expert, I'm continually learning and I'm just trying to leave some account of what what I've experienced or, or discovered in my own process and I think some of that does resonate with other people and some of it maybe is very personal to me. I'm not I'm not sure what what translates but I think because we all have bodies and we all have this common experience of being in the world that I think a lot more of it translates than doesn't because there's there are points where people can start to to know this sense in their own body. What is the occulted body? It's who we are. It's it's all of this body beneath the skin, but it's also including like the the dark side of the skin as well. And so it extends into light, but all of this is somehow shielded from well it's not, I mean there must be light through the skin. But it's, it's what our body is, it's the, the bones, it's the fascia, it's the, the organs, the, um, yeah, the collective tissue and everything that, they're hold, that it's holding. So, but it's complicated because this is the body that actually moves and senses, so it's full of uh, sensory stimulated. Um, it's, it feels everything, its own movement and outside, so it has like proprioceptive knowledge and it has you know, knowledge of, of other things moving. You have self-knowledge. I mean, babies have this self-knowledge. It's, it's, this is the body you have when you're in the womb. And you're growing. It's not static. There's not like this other, and it has to stay the same. And one of the problems I have is put too much emphasis on the trauma of the body or the pain body, is that it makes it seem that, no, it's there, and that's it, and you can't change it. And 
it's that actually one of the, the very interesting things about the fascia of the connective tissue is that it's always plastic. It's, it always has the potential until your last breath to start renewing itself, to start getting softer and more sensitive. It can always change. So we have this potential in us, no matter how old we are, to improve what we can do. And the memory will always be there, but it doesn't have to be carried like a burden. It can be just held within the body along with all of the, you know, the happiness, all of the, the delights, all of the, 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 the ecstatic feelings. All of the good feelings are in the body too. So there is a pleasure body as well as a pain body. We don't have to be like shackled to the pain body. So, you know, my, my religion is ecstasy. <laughs> that would be the only religion that I would, <laughs> I would acknowledge. Do you feel mm -hmm. that you are taking whatever pleasure body, pain body inside of you and you're using dance to heal yourself or to express maybe what is inside the occulted body, what's inside the mysterious, I guess, yeah. the deep ancestral atavistic parts of you? It is, it is that. Um, and it can go as deep as you want it to. It can go to pre-human, it can go to elemental levels where you're made out of stardust or you're made out of a swarm of bees or you're made out of grasses blowing in the winds or you're made out of stone. You don't have to restrict yourself to being just a, the thing that we, we look like. For me, magic is about... Uh, things changing in the world according to your desire. This movement, it's a kind of movement, and desire is movement, and the ecstatic, the body of pleasure is also this body of movement, because the body of pain is one of constriction. So the opposite is how you release it. There's only one secret, really, and it's to move. And the movement starts with the breath. And so the breath is like the, the first, and that the heartbeat are like the first stirrings of movement and then the movement just keeps building. I think this is actually a very important point for new witches, especially those in a female body or a trans body or a body that feels constantly under attack. I think a lot of women already feel unsafe in their bodies and when they're trying to do magic, they're not getting great results. They feel sort of stilted and sometimes I feel that way but I've noticed the more in touch I get with my body, the more effective my magic tends to be. What are some techniques that you would suggest that a person uses to kind of get rid of maybe unconscious blocks? Movement, but a very good is shaking movement. Like just uh, do shaking, but not just your hand, like your whole body. And these kind of trembling shaking movements are very good for just like releasing hanging, like passive hanging. So if you have like a pull-up bar in your house, just like hold on with your fingers and hang from it and just let the, the fascia stretch out and the spine realign itself. Orgasm, that's the other one, orgasm. So self-pleasure is a really good way to like feel better if you have like a headache or something is bothering you or you're stressed, just... Orgasm. Because a lot of women are disconnected from their bodies, and mm. also part of that disconnection too is about body image, and mm. I know a lot of women, myself included, self-anesthetize using food, using mm. drugs, using alcohol. How can a woman who is so disconnected from her body start to move back into her body? 
the real body is also your imaginary and your um, psyche. So I think when you're disconnected, it's actually because your psyche is disturbed by things in the environment, like you know, advertising crap or you know anything that is telling you you can't look or be the way you are. For me, the, the, the other part of the occulted body is it gives rise to these images, to the psyche. The image is the way we access like the deeper movements or the, the deeper experiences of the, the occulted body and allow them to rise to the surface. And your own psyche is what you should be projecting and what you should be carrying, what should be totally at one with your body when you're doing magic. But if it's not, it's cut. And so there's like the mind and then there's the body. And the mind isn't even your mind because it's worried about other things. It's never had a chance to exist and inhabit your body. It hasn't like you, you, you shut off that connection of the way your body feels from the way you look. And this really has to just grow organically out how your body feels. And then embrace how you look because this is who you are in the world. Mm. This is it, you know, why why inhibit your experience of like this absolutely amazing experience of being alive? Because someone said you're too short or something like that. It's just it's like fuck that. <laughs> I am. <laughs> I am. So there's this feeling of constantly being objectified as I'm walking down the street, as I'm just whatever. And this is such a universal feeling yeah. that women have. We were talking before about space being yeah. something that men feel comfortable in, but women don't feel that they uh, they own. They're always like under surveillance or under threat of some kind, being watched. But this is control, essentially, isn't it? These are just a mechanism of control, like looking and like um, having some criticism. It's, you know, either the internet is doing it to us or other people is doing it to us. And Speaking of um, things like looks, I know a lot of women, especially young women, they're really attracted to the occult because it looks cool. It, you know, it, let's face it, like crystals are pretty. Like witches of Instagram, that hashtag, oh my God, I just, it's like, you know, it's sort of like eye porn. You're just looking through, seeing yeah. people's altars, seeing all the incense and everything like that. The occult definitely didn't look cool when I joined it, <laughs> when I got involved. I think it's like these new hip witches that are like, they're the cool ones with the cool aesthetic. That's something that like younger women have created to go, I'm interested in witchcraft and I want it to look like this. So it's maybe not that they're being drawn to the aesthetic because there are a lot of cool and cute things in the world that aren't witchcraft at all. So I imagine that what they're drawn to are the other elements that go along with at least a sort of political identification as a witch, which would be power, female empowerment, sort of a feminist, actually I have control over my body and I have control over the space and I'm dangerous. You know, don't mess with me. So maybe they're more attracted to, to on a, a psychological level, at least this iconography of witchcraft and of being able to be effective in the world is actually about you're drawn on some deeper level to what it means to be a witch, what a witch has, what does a witch have? A witch has power. A witch has autonomy. She has like she is her own woman. She doesn't belong to a man, she doesn't answer to a man, and she can 
be effective in the world through means which are both occult and also natural, supernatural and natural. Magic can be nurturing. It's a place for people who feel as though they are not protected by society, that they are marginal voices. I think that's incredible that something like the occult, something like witchcraft, is a place for maybe like a teenage trans kid who are just, who's just like, I don't relate to the kids in my small town. I feel as yeah. though they're teasing me, they're bullying me, and I feel as though mundane means talking to the principal doesn't understand. Talking to my parents, I don't understand. But I feel yeah. as though I can do a candle spell and I can take back some of that power. I think that's incredible. It's certainly like answering a need, which is one of the characteristics of witchcraft, because it's done by people who have needs. It's, it's not like a hobby. <laughs> it's done for reasons, like for, for, for necessity. There's a sort of a point where you have to act. Mm. Oh my neighbor, show me the real story. I must be wasted to tell you the truth. I hide it. everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan, signing off. <laughs>